1: There's a famous William Goldman essay about the movie Saving Private Ryan. As anyone who's seen the movie might recall, it opens with a visceral opening scene of Allied soldiers storming Omaha Beach on D-Day. The film then cuts to an old man in a cemetery in France, commemorating his lost Banner brothers. Director Steven Spielberg slowly zooms the camera into a close-up of the man's weeping eyes, followed by a flashback to World War II, and how these soldiers storming the beach saves Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon, who is behind enemy lines. One by one, throughout the movie, the soldiers die, leaving only Matt Damon's Private Ryan. And then, according to Goldman, Now the morphing shot comes, and I'm looking at the old face of Matt Damon at the cemetery. Well, you can't do that. Don't you see? He wasn't bleeping there. He knew nothing of the attack on the beach, knew nothing of the odyssey that followed, and he never had a chance to hear about it. The only spare moment he had was when he was telling us all about his brothers and the ugly girl and setting the barn on fire. Now many regard Saving Private Ryan as one of the greatest war movies of all time. And yet, as Goldman notes, there's a cheat in its framing device. The opening sequence is meant to make us feel like we're on Omaha Beach ourselves, and yet we're seeing it through the eyes of a man who wasn't even there. In the Willie VC case, we've recently come to learn that there was a similar cheat in connection with Denise Mitchell, the state's only eyewitness who identified Willie Vesey as the shooter of the Jamaican. And while that cheat might not be of the same magnitude as the cheat in Saving Private Ryan, it might actually be the inverse of that cheat. It's also not the only new evidence that was previously undisclosed.
2: We aired our last episode on the Willie Peewee VZ case on November 13th. At the time, we noted that the Pennsylvania Innocence Project had gotten new evidence in his case that had led them to file for a new trial. But that new information was filed under seal, meaning that no one was able to access it until now, because the seal has been lifted. So, how did they get this evidence? It came from two other Philadelphia cases involving wrongful convictions— in 2016, DNA testing established that Anthony Wright was wrongfully convicted for the 1991 rape and murder of Louise Talley, leading to his release after 25 years of imprisonment. Wright was convicted in large part due to a confession that he gave to Wacker Squad member Martin Devlin, who was also one of the interrogating officers when Willie Veazey confessed to the murder of the Jamaican.
3: To understand how the exoneration of Anthony Wright led to evidence of Willie Veazey's innocence, We have to start at the beginning of the case. In 1991, Anthony Wright was convicted for the rape and murder of a 77-year-old woman in Philadelphia. She was found in her home, stabbed to death with TVs and other items stolen from her home. Within a few hours of the discovery of the victim's body, police learned that two men had been seen in the streets attempting to sell a TV that had been taken from her house. The two men were picked up for questioning and both of them gave statements which although inconsistent in their details, they were at least consistent in one respect. They both said that they'd seen 20-year-old Tony Wright into the victim's house before the killing. Both of the men had records, though, that meant neither of them would be particularly credible as witnesses. Luckily for police, though, soon more witnesses came forward. They picked up three teenagers in the neighborhood between the ages of 14 and 16 and brought them in for questioning without their parents. And all three of the teenagers told police that they'd seen Tony Wright entered the victim's house, and that, at the time, he'd been wearing a Chicago Bulls t-shirt. The next day, the police brought Anthony Wright in to ask him about the murder. Detective Martin Devlin had not been previously involved in the case up to that point, but when Wright arrived at the station, Devlin came down to conduct interrogation. According to police, after a mere 14 minutes of questioning, Wright gave a full and complete confession, and Detective Devlin hand-wrote Wright's confession down on a nine-page statement which Wright then signed. According to Wright, after hours of questioning and physical threats by the detectives, he was told that he could go home if he just signed some papers, which he eventually did without reading them. In
2: the signed confession, Wright described the clothing that he wore during the crime, a black Chicago Bulls shirt, some sneakers and jeans. So the police went to Wright's home, where they found and seized the exact clothing that he described. And they found one drop of blood on the jeans and two drops of blood on the shirt that matched the victim's blood type. It is unsurprising that after trial, Anthony Wright was convicted of the murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But here's the thing. Wright actually always maintained his innocence. He said he had nothing to do with the crime. He didn't confess. He just signed the papers when the police had told him after hours of threats and interrogation that he could go home if he did. And those clothes, the ones with the victim's blood, they weren't even his. He had no idea how the police could have obtained them from his bedroom. In 2005, he sought out DNA testing, but the court denied his request. And after appeals, Wright was finally granted testing, which was conducted in 2013. Now, Although previously the medical examiner had concluded that no sperm had been recovered from samples, in fact, there had been sperm recovered that matched a single male profile, which matched a cocaine addict named Ronnie Bird, who, at the time of the murder, had been squatting in an abandoned building not far from the victim's home. He was friends with the first two witnesses the police had questioned, the ones who claimed that Wright had done the murder. In addition to the samples from the victim's body, DNA testing was also done on the interior of the Chicago Bulls shirt and jeans using new techniques that have been developed that could determine who had worn the clothing in question. And none of the DNA obtained matched Wright. In fact, the skin cells came from the victim. The clothes didn't belong to Wright. They were clothes that the victim had worn herself.
3: In other words, the police had found a Chicago Bulls shirt and jeans at the crime scene and had thought they were more masculine clothes. Fact of the Chicago Bulls t-shirt then worked its way into witness statements and Wright's confession. And the police then claimed to have found the clothes at Wright's house in his bedroom. In reality, they were clothes that had belonged to and had been worn by the victim. And the unmistakable conclusion is that the police had recovered them from the crime scene from the victim's home and then falsely claimed to have recovered them at Wright's house in order to link Wright to the murder. After a PCR petition based on this new evidence, Anthony Wright's conviction was vacated, but he didn't go free. The state decided to try him again for the murder, claiming that even though the DNA evidence showed Ronnie Byrd had also raped the victim, that didn't mean that Wright couldn't have also raped her and killed her on his own. Unfortunately for the state, two of the witnesses, the two guys who were friends with Ronnie Bird, had both died before trial. Instead, their statements had to be read into evidence. As for the three teenagers, they were candid, saying they had been forced into the statements they gave and had been told they'd never go home if they hadn't said Wright had done the murder. The jury did not buy the state's case. In August 2016, they acquitted him in all charges. Tony Wright was a free man.
2: Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you. Whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or learn something new. This year, I'm getting as motivated as I can because I'm trying to make a healthy change for my life. And so I've been listening to audiobooks that inspire me, including Braving the Wilderness, Daily Self-Discipline, and The Power of Habit. And Audible helps you listen to more books by letting you switch seamlessly between your devices, picking up exactly where you left off. So whether it's on your phone, in your car, on a tablet, you can put that device down and pick it right back up where you left it off somewhere else. You can get through tons of books, hands and eyes free, while doing almost anything. And Audible members get a credit every month that's good for any audiobook in the entire store, regardless of the price and unused credits roll over to the next month. And if you didn't like your audiobook, well, you can exchange it with no questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. That's kind of amazing. So start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. Once again, get your very first free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership by going to audible.com undisclosed, or texting the word UNDISCLOSED to 500-500 and getting started today. Audible Content has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and what I'm looking for, inspiration. So this year, get inspired along with me. That's audible.com slash undisclosed, or once again, text the word UNDISCLOSED to 500-500. Anthony Wright then brought a civil suit in federal court against the city of Philadelphia and several of the officers involved in investigating his case for violating his constitutional rights and for civil conspiracy. As part of his claims, he alleged the Philadelphia Police Department had, quote, engaged in a pattern and practice of unconstitutional misconduct and homicide investigations, including the fabrication of evidence, coercion, and suggestion of false statements from witnesses and suspects and suppression of exculpatory evidence. In order to prevail in his civil rights claims, Wright had to present evidence that the government had engaged in this pattern and practice of constitutional violations. And in discovery, he requested that defendants produce records related to several other cases in which Wright alleged similar misconduct happened. And one of those cases was the case of Willie Veazey. Like Tony Wright, Willie Veazey had been interrogated by Detective Devlin. And like Tony Wright, Willie Veazey had signed a confession. And like Tony Wright... Vizi had claimed he had been physically coerced into giving that confession.
3: So, in the discovery process, the defendants ended up producing homicide files for several defendants that had been named in Wright's suit, including Willie Vizi. But after producing these files, after producing records related to Vizi's case, among others, the defendants realized they'd made a little mistake. Under Pennsylvania law, those files were considered confidential and should only have been produced to Wright under confidentiality restrictions. Unfortunately, the defendants had forgotten to do that, and now sought to have those documents retroactively declared confidential. Doing so would have prevented Wright from showing those newly obtained files to anyone else. It was too late, though. Wright's attorneys had already shared the files from VZ's case with his attorneys at the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. Doing so would been necessary because Wright's attorneys had no way of understanding themselves what the files meant or any significance they might have, and in order to find out if there was any exculpatory material in the files, Wright's attorneys needed to consult with the people who knew those files the best, and that would be the attorneys working on those cases. And when VZ's attorneys reviewed the files that Wright had obtained in Discovery, they found that, yes, there was in fact exculpatory evidence in the files that had never been released before. Visa's attorneys then filed a motion based on this new evidence. And when that happened, the state of Philadelphia objected, saying that Vesey had no right to use evidence obtained in a civil case in a federal court in a motion to overturn his criminal conviction in state court. So, in the Wright case, back in federal court in civil suit, they sought an order from the court which would compel Visa's attorneys to give back the evidence that Vesey had been wrongfully convicted and be prevented from using that evidence in his defense. In other words, even though Wright's civil case had uncovered evidence of Brady violations in at least two cases, including Beesey's, those records were confidential under Pennsylvania law, and the court should order the Pennsylvania Innocence Project to give back all copies of the homicide file they had.
2: The court, thankfully, said no. That was not going to happen. The court had no authority to order the Pennsylvania Innocence Project to do anything, And at the time they'd been provided the files, they were not marked confidential and Wright was perfectly within his rights to share them. But the fight wasn't over. Additional homicide files were produced, this time marked confidential. And VZ's attorneys wanted to use these new records in VZ's PCRA. So in motions filed before federal court, the city of Philadelphia argued that VZ's attorneys had no right to do so. The Pennsylvania Innocence Project could not have obtained the exculpatory evidence through the criminal process, so they should not be permitted to cheat Pennsylvania law by instead obtaining them through a civil case. Moreover, the city of Philadelphia argued, allowing the Pennsylvania Innocence Project to see and use the exculpatory evidence would endanger public safety by enabling guilty defendants to secure their release. The federal court disagreed with the city of Philadelphia. Wright did indeed have a legitimate reason for sharing the homicide files with the attorneys for those defendants, the court found, because that's the only reasonable method of actually evaluating the evidence.
3: The defendant's suggestion that Mr. Wright cross referenced the homicide files with the list of exculpatory evidence provided by the Innocence Project is unfair for two reasons. First, even with an Innocence Project provided list, Mr. Wright may not be able to tell which evidence in the homicide files is new exculpatory evidence. Second, this cumbersome process would tilt the playing field. Mr. Wright would be analyzing the files on his own, while the defendants would benefit from a free back-and-forth with the district attorney's office over the files. Analyzing the files on his own would put Mr. Wright at a profound disadvantage. As his attorney pointed out at oral argument, one must have lived the files to truly understand them.
2: The court's opinion goes on to also reject the argument that allowing the attorneys to obtain exculpatory evidence in their client's cases would endanger public safety. The court held.
3: The district attorney's office argues that lifting confidentiality over the homicide files might enable guilty prisoners to secure release. This is nonsensical. It is unclear how homicide files containing evidence of police misconduct could lead to guilty prisoners being released. To the contrary, information about potential police misconduct is important to public safety.
2: As a result, the evidence used in VZ's PCRA petition was recently unsealed, and we are able to share it on Undisclosed. And that evidence shows the tactics used against Willie VZ were similar to the tactics used back in 1991 to obtain the wrongful conviction of Anthony Wright.
3: So let's start by recapping what happened in Willie Veazey's case. Back on January 24th, 1992, two men were shot in a street shooting in Northern Philadelphia, a little before 10 o'clock in the evening. One of them, Efrem Gonzalez, survived the attack, but the other, John Lewis, who's also known as a Jamaican, was killed. There were several witnesses who'd been out on the street at the time, but they gave conflicting accounts about what happened, and none of them were able to identify the shooter. That left the state with Denise Mitchell as witness. She said that she'd seen the shooting from the relative security of the second floor of a row house on that block. Hours after the shooting, she would say that the shooter was a man who went by the name of Pee Wee. And while initially, just a few days after the shooting, she was unable to identify Willie Veezy out of a lineup, months later, when she was shown an array again, the same one, she was able to make a positive identification. It was Willie Veezy, she said. That was Pee Wee. That was the shooter. At Veazey's trial, Denise Mitchell once again identified him as the shooter, but two other things came out that undermined that identification. First, Mitchell testified that her vision was 40 over 100 and that she wasn't wearing glasses on the night of the shooting. And second, Mitchell acknowledged at trial, although somewhat reluctantly, that prior to trial, she'd spoken to defense counsel and she'd told him something had happened that had caused her to question her identification of Willie Veazey. After the shooting... She'd seen someone else who she thought looked like Willie Veazey, which it couldn't have been as he was already locked up, and that made her question her original identification. These issues were amplified after trial when Denise Mitchell signed an affidavit stating that she was actually legally blind at the time of the shooting and that she had seen more people since then who looked just like Willie Veazey, which caused her to officially recant her identification of him as the shooter. The Pennsylvania courts, however, found this affidavit was not enough to throw out the conviction— Because trial counsel had made aware, at least to some extent, of these issues prior to trial and had actually raised them at the trial.
1: Simply put, the same can't be said about the undisclosed information contained in VC's homicide file, which again was not turned over to trial counsel in any way, shape or form. The first new document from this file that's just been turned over now is the investigation interview record for a witness named Cassandra Hayward, who was interviewed just hours after the shooting of the Jamaican. Here are the key portions of that interview.
3: Cassandra, did you see the shooting?
2: No, but I heard about it from Denise Mitchell. I was on the phone with Denise Mitchell, who's my stepsister, when the shooting happened. Denise told me she was outside when it happened, and she was almost shot. Denise told me that John was dead, and she saw almost his whole head smashed. She said there were two guys shooting out of windows in the red car, and she said someone in a brown and rust car shot the guy in front of her house. She gave the cops a sheet to put on the Spanish guy while he was lying on the ground.
3: Is John known by any other name?
2: Yes, they call him Jamaica.
3: Did you hear anything about who did the shooting?
2: Yes, I got to the scene, I heard from people in the neighborhood that the red mercury car is known as the stick-up boys, and they have been in the neighborhood sticking up people before. I heard that they've been sticking up people for a while. They are from across the track around 11th Street.
1: Now, simply put, the existence of this previously undisclosed interview is a bombshell, and it really could have been used in so many different ways at trial if it had been turned over to the defense. First, It directly contradicts Denise Mitchell's claim that she was upstairs in her row house when the shooting took place, which would likely cause any juror to question the credibility of her entire accounting of the shooting. Second, it indicates that Mitchell said there were two cars with a shooter or shooters, which fundamentally contradicts every other accounting by every other witness in the case. No one besides Denise Mitchell has ever said that two cars were present. And while Mitchell did say in her police interview that there were red and gold cars in the street, she never said the gold car was involved in the shooting. But according to Hayward, Mitchell not only said that a brown and rust car was present, but also someone in that car, and not the red car, actually shot Efren Gonzalez. Beyond these inconsistencies with Denise Mitchell's other accountings, what Mitchell told Hayward also contradicts the simple one-car robbery contained in both Willie Vesey's confession and the state's narrative at trial. Third, and this is crucial, Mitchell said that all the shooting was done from men inside the cars— at trial, of course, she would claim that she had a bird's eye view of Willie V. C. pushing Efren Gonzalez against her neighbor's row house and shooting him. In this version, however, Gonzalez's shooter never gets out of the car, making it much less likely that Mitchell would have been able to identify him. Fourth, in this version, Mitchell also sees the shooter shoot the Jamaican, a shooting that she claims she didn't see when she testified at trial. Fifth, Hayward's statement corroborates the statement by eyewitness Geraldine Martinez that people were saying the shooting was done by the Stick Up Boys from 10th and Indiana. Hayward, of course, says something similar, that the word in the street was that this was the work of the Stick Up Boys from across the track around 11th Street. Finally, sixth, the implication of Hayward's statement is that Denise Mitchell did not know the identity of the shooter or shooters. After all, she knew Willie Vc pretty well, even though she only knew him by the nickname of Peeway. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate to this site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, my listeners can get ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com undisclosed. That's ZipRecruiter.com undisclosed. ZipRecruiter.com slash undisclosed. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I spoke to Willie Vesey's trial attorney, Jules Epstein, about his take regarding this undisclosed interview.
4: This is you and me talking. Is it right when I did homicide trials? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd actually have to sit down. First of all, I'd want to know this, because I know she's telling different stories. And then... I, I know you know this, right? So I had an on-again, off-again talking relationship with Denise, although she crossed me up at trial. Um, But she answered my calls, and this bull she gave at trial that I was harassing her. I'm a pretty nice guy. (laughs) It's not how I play. Um, But I could have asked her about this at a minimum, and then at least considered the option of calling Cassandra.
1: As you say, it's sort of a double-edged sword. It's a contradictory accounting, but it also does place her closer to the shooting than her accounting a trial.
4: Right. Now, having said that, at the end of the day, and again, I have to go back through all the other discovery, it might fit into a good trial narrative, right, that this is what – because the first time she doesn't identify him, right? And there's obviously some pressure being put on her. The cops are trying to resolve the case. You know, who's she going to talk more naturally to, the police, or maybe she didn't want to admit being out on the street? Who knows? So uh, this is great, right? Monday morning quarterbacking 25 years later. Uh, I could have woven that into a more coherent story, Mm. whether at the end of the day I would have or would have said, no, I like her upstairs with 40 over 100 vision right? uh, That's a hard one. That's different from should this have been disclosed? And then, you know, should a jury have heard it? Maybe.
2: That said, a second new document from Willie Veazey's homicide file indicates that Denise Mitchell might actually have known or at least been made aware of the shooter. This document is a police activity sheet dated February 7th, 1992. In relevant part, it states that on Thursday, February 7th, 1992, Detectives Yastrzemski and Santiago returned to the scene and re-interviewed witness Denise Mitchell, black female. Above stated, as she did in her initial interview, that a male known to her only as Pee Wee was the male that she observed shoot Ephraim Gonzalez after first robbing him. Further stated that she tried but could not find out the male's real name. Further stated that she heard that the shooter and accomplices hung out around the 5th and Westmoreland Streets area. Above also supplied the name of a male known to her as Marshall, who lived in the 600 block of Russell Street, as being a friend of the homicide victim and who supposedly knew who the perpetrators were. Now, as a point of reference, the intersection of Fifth and Westmoreland Streets is south of the scene of the crime, on the literal other side of the Amtrak tracks, and Willie Busy lived and was generally known to hang out in the area north of the shooting. So this previously undisclosed interview reveals that Denise Mitchell gave information implicating someone else in the crime. And indeed, this is not something the detectives dismissed out of hand. This takes us to a third previously undisclosed document. Another police activity report states... Detectives Yastrzemski and Santiago were contacted by a black male, Marshall Wall, a friend of deceased, John Lewis, whose house was visited by detectives on February 7, 1992. As a result, detectives returned to his residence and were advised that he heard that a male known to him as David was involved in the shooting of John Lewis. Added that this information was from talk on the street. Wall then directed detectives to the residence of the male known as David. Detectives conducted a fish file check and found that a David Sims, Black mail 30, resided that location. Record check shows that mail has four priors, all for auto theft.
3: And this new document, the one from the Anthony Wright litigation that turned up, helps explain another document, one that actually was turned over the defense before trial. Although when the defense got it, it didn't have the pertinent content. But the earlier file is an investigation interview record with David Sims, which dates back to March 14th, 1992. Here's a relevant portion of that interview.
2: Do you know John Lewis, who was murdered on January 24th, 1992? No. I am showing you a photo. Do you recognize this person?
1: John Lewis, decedent. I know him by his face. i seen him around 5th and Westmoreland Street. I see him with a lot of jewelry on, so I thought he was involved in drugs.
2: Did you know that this male was dead? No. Did you know anyone by the name of Ephraim Gonzalez? No. I'm going to show you two photo spreads. Tell me if you
1: recognize anyone. Photo number one, don't know anyone there. Photo number two, don't know anyone there also.
2: Do you frequent the area of 700 block West Russell Street? I know
1: what it is, but I don't go there.
2: Do you know anyone who owns a red Datsun with black louvers in the back window? No. Do you know of anyone who lives in the area of the 700 block Russell
1: Street? My friend Tito, his brother-in-law, lives there... That's two brothers-in-law. One is named Angel, and the other is named Cano. I'm showing you two photos. Tell me if you recognize anyone. Jose Rosario, that's Cano. Angel, that's Angel. Tell me what you know about both Angel and Cano. I know them through Tito. I wash Angel's car. He brings it around my house, and I wash it. I know Cano from being with Angel.
3: Now, the defense had this file before trial, but they ended up not using it. But it's hard to blame them or find any fault in the decision not to do so. Because, for instance, when Collins was going through the files and doing an initial summary of all the interviews and the content and significance, his own notes had witness, question mark, and, quote, nothing of use for the summary of the contents. Because out of context, there's no way to know that this interview actually is significant. And we now know, with the files from the Anthony Wright litigation, that this interview, the detectives were talking to someone who was a suspect in the murder of the Jamaican. Still, that also raises questions here, because if the police were questioning someone they thought was guilty of the murder, why were they questioning him this way? As the Pennsylvania Innocence Project put it, in their motion arguing for a new trial, police just asked him non-confrontational questions and showed him some photos. Now, this interview was about two months after the shooting, and Sims at that time was the only viable lead. Willie Veazey wouldn't be identified for another couple of months. So why not ask Sims whether people called him Peewee? Why not ask him where he was on the night of the murder? Why not ask him whether he shot the Jamaican? And why only ask him about a red dotson when Denise Mitchell had mentioned multiple cars in her statement and other witnesses had said the make and the model of the red car was unclear? Actually, for that matter, where did the police get this whole idea of a red Dotson with black louvers in the back window? Because no other witness interview we have, no other statements, describe the car in this way. After seeing the new documents from the Anthony Wright litigation, Colin asked VZ's trial counsel, Jules Epstein, about the newly found documents.
4: It showed beyond police playing dirty pool by not giving me a context. It deprived me of an entire line of investigation, at a minimum a line of investigation, and maybe more uh, grist for the cross-examination of Denise.
1: Do you have any recall whatsoever of that David Sims interview back from the trial itself?
4: Only from looking at this now and recalling vaguely that there was this interview of some other guy. Did you have something to do with it? Did you know about it? No, something like that, something, but nothing that, you know, sometimes you get interviews in these. So here's how discovery worked in Philadelphia back then. Uh, And if you know this already, forgive me. Um, Post preliminary hearing, uh, the prosecutor would send you a letter with a pile of witness statements. And say, "Dear Mr. Epstein, here is the discovery in uh, Commonwealth versus Willie Vizi," and it would have a list statement of uh, David Smith and Denise Mitchell and blah blah blah. And you'd read it. And so we knew that you know they're constantly knocking on doors and asking people, um, and maybe I wasn't savvy enough, but I, it didn't occur to me that okay, David Smith, what's this got to do with anything except some other guy they spoke to, and they're actually being nice. They're sharing with me all the, the you know, the the leads they pursued or all the people, uh, but with no context for me to value it.
2: When it comes to your health, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day. And Quip knows that. They've combined dentistry and design to make a better electric toothbrush. With Quip, you don't have to worry about getting new brush heads or toothpaste because they're delivered right to your door on schedule. So you replace your brush on time and have better oral hygiene at an affordable price with the sleekest design you've ever seen for an electric toothbrush. Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of bulkier traditional electric devices. And guess what? I've been traveling with it. It's great to travel with. And it has guiding pulses that alert you when to switch sides, making brushing the right amount just effortless. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel anywhere. And like I said, I've been traveling with it, or you can even take it to your gym and it's a great carry on. And because the thing that cleans your mouth should also be clean, their subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule. They deliver a new brush head every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip is backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. Now, most toothbrushes don't get named with Time Magazine's Best Inventions of the Year, but Quip did. So find out for yourself why. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com undisclosed right now, you'll get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com undisclosed. Once again, that's getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com undisclosed. Your overall health is directly connected to your dental health, so try Quip today. I promise you it will be love at first brush. Returning to the question of where the police got the description of the red Dotson, that takes us to the fourth previously undisclosed document in Willie Veazey's homicide file. It's the investigation interview record for Ephraim Gonzalez, the other man shot on West Russell Street on January 24th. He was interviewed at 7.20 a.m. on January 25th, so about nine hours after the shooting. Here's his long description of the shooting.
1: I met Angel about two days ago, and one of the guys asked Angel if I could sell weed for Angel. The arrangement was for me to sell right there where I got shot. I had just started selling weed yesterday. I was selling dime. I hadn't gotten to sell any. Just before I got shot, I was right across the street talking to Angel, and I just walked across the street to start selling. I was there for about 10 minutes when this red Dodson with black louvers in the back window pulled up to the middle of the block. A black guy got out of the passenger side of the car and walked back down to me. This dude said he wanted to buy seven bags. I took the bags out and the dude went up to the car and told the driver to go around the corner to let traffic go by. This dude then comes back to me and he's talking to me. He said to me that he had $60 and wanted 7 bags. I told him not 7 bags for 60 The dude then walked over to the car and then he came back and said $65 for 7 bags. I said okay. He waited for the car to come up next to me and that's when the dude grabbed my money and weed bags. At the same time he was pulling out a gun. It looked like a 38, black. When I saw the dude pull out the gun, I turned and tried to run, and I heard the gunshot, and I went down to the ground. When I was on the ground, I tried to get up, and I could feel something hot in my chest. I could feel something going up and down in my chest. I pushed myself about halfway up, and I could see the dude run to the passenger side of the car and open the door. This same dude then started shooting down the block. I saw him shoot twice down the block. I heard that he had shot a guy in the head. The car then left down Russell Street. Can you describe the guy that was doing the shooting? He looked like he was about 18 years. He was black and had a dark color ski hat and a three-quarter length dark green cotton coat with a hood about six feet tall.
3: Would you recognize the man that shot you? Yes. What did the guy that shot you take from you?
1: He got 24 bags of $10 weed and $10 that I had.
2: There's clearly a ton of important information from this interview that could have helped Willie Vesey at trial. First, in his confession, Willie said that his share of the robbery proceeds was $150. And yet, here we have the victim himself saying that only $10 was taken from him. Second, Ephraim Gonzalez describes his shooter as an 18-year-old while Willie Vesey was 26 years old at the time of the shooting, which is a significant difference. Third, Gonzalez describes the shooter wearing the same three-fourth-length jacket that other witnesses said was worn by the man who had come by 700 West Russell Street earlier in the day to sell jewelry, and who definitely wasn't really busy. And then there's the last aspect of this, which is frankly baffling. Mere hours after the shooting, Gonzalez says that he spoke to his shooter at close range on two separate occasions, and that he would recognize the man that shot him. And yet, He didn't testify at Willie Vesey's trial, and there's no indication from the homicide file that he was ever asked to identify Willie Vesey. There's also no indication that there was ever any effort to locate Gonzalez after January 25th, and while Gonzalez later died, he was alive at the time of Vesey's trial. Once again, here's trial counsel Jules Epstein on this new evidence. Well, a couple of things. One is, had I been
4: able to track him down I would have followed up on this. Number two, it is remarkably suspect that they didn't go to him with a photo at some point. Now, unless they truly, truly couldn't find him, but I don't recall seeing efforts about that in the activity logs. So it's like, what didn't we know that we still don't know? The other thing is, this is always a risky proposition, but sending out my own investigator to try and find him and show him Willie's picture.
3: So what's going on here? I mean, in this case, Willie Veazey had a pretty solid alibi, and the state's only eyewitness putting him there was pretty shaky. So are we to believe that the cops had a surviving victim of the shooting and they never made an effort to have Gonzalez identify the man they thought was the shooter? And usually the default position would be to take the state's word on this, but how can we possibly do that in this case? Because we know the state failed to turn over the statement of the surviving victim, key evidence relating to the only alternate suspect, and not one but two different statements calling into question their only witness' identification of Willie Veazey. And the state didn't even turn this over to Veazey's team on their own. It took another man establishing that he was wrongfully convicted for this evidence to be turned over, over their strenuous objections. Actually, in this case, it took the exoneration of two men for this evidence to come to light because last year, Rabia covered the case of Sean Thomas, another Pennsylvania Innocence Project client. As you might recall, Thomas had his conviction for murdering a Puerto Rican man named Domingo Martinez thrown out by the Conviction Review Unit last May based on a rock-solid alibi because he'd been in court at the time of the shooting. Martinez had been murdered while delivering $25,000 that he picked up from a bank to one of his cash-checking stores in Northeast Philadelphia. Specifically, that murder happened after what attorney Jim Fogorski has described as a staged car accident near the intersection of Sedgley and Allegheny Avenues. And earlier this year, Sean was released in large part based upon his homicide file, which had gone missing for years, but recently turned up. Well, guess what was in that homicide file? Among other things, there was an investigation interview record for an interview by Detective Devlin with a man named Oliver Walthour. On November 16th, 1990, Walthauer was brought in for questioning after he was pulled over while riding in a car driven by Lloyd Hicks. Detective Devlin interviewed Walthauer and asked him about something he'd heard about the murder of Domingo Martinez. And here's the relevant portion of the interview. Note that T-Row here is actually Lloyd Hicks, who was one of the Jamaican's friends who was present on the day of the shooting.
1: Well, I didn't have anything to do with that, Detective, if that's what you think. The only thing I can tell you is that this Wednesday afternoon, I was home. It must have been about 12 noon, and Tiro and John, his cousin, and this guy, Andrew Bagwell, came over, and we all left and went over to the bar at 8th and Venego Street. When we got there, there was a lot of people in there already. Well, anyway, we started drinking and playing pool. I noticed that John was flashing around a lot of money. He must have had four or $5,000 in him. John don't never have no money. I said to him, man, I don't ever see you with any money. And John said, yes, I got me a good beat. He told me that he robbed this old Puerto Rican guy between Seventh and Tioga and Sedgley. He said they followed him in a car, and they hit the dude's car, and when they stopped, he said he jumped out of the car. He was acting like it was the other dude's fault, yelling at him and like that, and then John said him and the dude in the other car, the Puerto Rican guy, started wrestling with each other, and then John said he robbed him. I asked him how much he got, and he said about $2,500.
2: So yeah, that's John Lewis, the victim in the case, and two of his friends and eyewitnesses, Lloyd Hicks and Andrew Bagwell, essentially being accused of killing Domingo Martinez. And the description that Walthour gives of John Lewis's confessions matches with the known narrative of the Martinez murder. Indeed, Walthour gives another detail that matches the known narrative in the Martinez case when asked whether Lewis said how he knew his victim.
1: No, sir, he just said he was looking for the money for a long time. He always told me that he made his money going to banks and watching people get money out. When the people left the bank, they would follow him and then rob them.
2: Now, it's important to note that Walthauer later recanted the statement. In a letter dated November 16, 1990, Walthauer said that he made up Lewis's confession because the cops told me that the car we was in today was a car that bumped the old Puerto Rican. Lloyd and John always drive this car.
1: Next, fast forward to May 1, 1991, and we have a second interview of Walthauer, in which he says that a man named Sean and his brother Tibo had something to do with the murder. Now, it's unclear whether Walt Thought I was referring to Sean Thomas or another Sean, but here's something that is clear. The Domingo-Martinez murder was unsolved at the time of Willie Vesey's murder trial in 1992. Sean Thomas wasn't arrested until 1993 and wasn't prosecuted until 1994. And here's something else that's clear. The state never disclosed to Willie Vesey that the victim in the case and two key witnesses were named as suspects in the murder of Domingo-Martinez. This is exactly the type of information the state needs to turn over to a defendant like Willie V.C. for a few reasons. It can open up all sorts of lines of investigation, can be used at trial to provide an alternate explanation for the murder, and it can be used to undermine the credibility of witnesses for the prosecution. I asked Jules Epstein about his reaction upon seeing these new documents.
4: Uh, well, beyond words like outrage, um, it would have opened up again a whole line of at least investigation. Um, Whether I would have had anything beyond hearsay to get that into a trial, I don't know. So right now I'm talking evidence professor to evidence professor. Um, But at a minimum, it would have opened up a line of investigation and maybe generated evidence that I could introduce to say, they got the whole picture wrong here. This isn't about some story about getting back at some guy over a robbery. These are killers who got killed.
1: Putting all this undisclosed evidence together, the question becomes whether it satisfies the Brady standard. In other words, if all this evidence had been disclosed to the defense at the time of Willie Vesey's trial, is there a reasonable probability that the jury would have found Willie Vesey not guilty or at least deadlocked? Here's Jules Epstein's take.
4: I always break Brady into two parts, and I know Brady doesn't really let me do this. Was this exculpatory? Absolutely. Uh, Was this materially exculpatory? I have to believe so. Um, This jury took a while to deliberate. The prosecution theory that this was a cold-blooded murder they didn't buy. To me, that's generally been a sign of a split in the jury and a compromise. can't prove that, but that's an experience-based intuition. If I could have impeached Denise more, and if I could have shown that there was a whole other story here, a story the police knew and didn't follow, I need to say this. This is an incredibly hard case, and I'm not trying to justify my loss here, Colin. Um, I was trying a false confession case in the early 90s when false confession research was not where it is today and where false confession awareness was not um, where it is today. Again, trying to be intellectually honest. The hardest thing to argue against is a confession that they got in about 45 minutes to an hour with no black and blue marks, right? Um, But I still think if if we talked in the terms of reasonable probability, um, and that that's, I think, still less than 50 percent, right? Um, Then the answer is you bet, you bet. I had a time card. (laughs) and a bunch of other lies and stuff going on. And maybe we would have hit critical mass.
1: This is the same argument being made by the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, that all of these pieces of undisclosed evidence undermine our confidence in the jury's verdict and create the reasonable probability of a different outcome at trial. So, will the court agree? Well, what we can tell you is we'll continue to follow this case and report to you whenever there's a new update.
2: big, big thank you to everybody who made this very important series possible. I have to begin by thanking the folks at the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. Marissa, Riley, Jim... You guys do amazing work, and your entire teams. Thank you to Mitl Talhan as our executive producer. Thanks for keeping us going. Baluki, thank you so much for designing our logo. A big thanks to Patrick Cortez and Ramiro Marquez for our theme music. Thank you to all of our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Audio production is done by Rebecca Lavoie of Partners in Crime Media, and she is the host of one of my favorite podcasts, by the way, Crime Writers on Do Not miss it definitely check it out don't forget to send any questions you have to us over twitter and use the hashtag ud addendum to tag those questions so we can respond to them in the addendum uh, and don't forget to follow us online on all our social media our handle is at undisclosed pod that's instagram facebook and twitter thanks so much for listening